Guys, good morning. Go ahead and find your seats. That's the Spirit telling you to sit. Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting day in the life of our church. Uh, Jackson and Claire are getting married, if you can't tell. This is their section right over here. So all their people are gone, which we'll talk to them about that later. Uh, we're skipping church for weddings, but um, it's all good. It is, it's an exciting day. We're, we're excited to celebrate with them this afternoon. And so pray for them as they uh, begin this journey uh, as husband and wife. And uh, even as some of you in, in the room today have been married for a long time, and uh, some of you are walking down the same road uh, through engagement to being married, um, just be mindful for uh, Jackson and Claire today as they worship through their wedding and hopefully for a life together as husband and wife. <laughs> Mallory, we're glad that you're here. All right. Um, hey, uh, my name's Stephen, by the way. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm one of the elders and uh, lead pastor here. And um, we've been walking through the book of Philippians. And before we, we jump in, I'm, I'm going to give a few caveats today. Looks different, right? You have something in your seat that's not normally there, and I'll lay that out uh, here in a minute. But we've made a, a rhythm of praying for unreached people groups uh, as part of our worship gathering together. So even before we dive into God's word and we start looking at what he's telling us in this letter to the church in Philippi, we're going to pray for an unreached people group. And so um, we're a few months into doing this and it's, it's very interesting to see how the way that we are talking has changed. Uh, in family groups, in the way that you're corresponding to each other, uh, we, our, our vision has become broader, and that is a good and right thing. That is why we're doing this. And so uh, today our country is Niger, and uh, the main religion is Islam. And as if you've noticed the rhythm in all of these, most of the unreached people group, uh, the main religion has been Islam. And so if you want to know how to pray, pray that way right? Pray towards uh, the gospel becoming truth for people uh, whose hearts have been hardened by uh, some other story, some other lie. The biggest thing is physical suffering, a lack of good food, a lack of education. Um, this is a very, very impoverished country. And so let's pray. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I've been praying for specifically is that God would raise up gospel-centered humanitarian groups to go, right? Everybody wants to go dig a well. Everybody wants to go send food. But our prayer should be that they'd be people of the gospel that would go. And so, and through those agencies that we would see gospel-centered churches being planted and uh, education would change, food reform would change, and all those things because of the gospel has taken root there. And ultimately, and you'll see how this ties into our text today, if you were in family group or have read through Philippians 2, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is our prayer. And so let's pray now, and then we'll dive into Philippians chapter 2. Father, we are thankful to be together. We're thankful uh, for the story that you're writing in, the, in our midst here at the branch. God, we're grateful uh, just for the time that we have week after week to dive into your word, to sing uh, songs to your, to your name, to your renown. We pray that you would be glorified in all that we do uh, throughout the week as a corporate body and as a scattered body. Uh, we want to be a vessel used by you uh, for the good of those around us. And so would you give us the strength and courage to do that? We do pray for our Nigerian brothers and sisters today. We pray for those who are, are waking up or going to bed hungry, malnourished. We pray for uh, those who are uneducated, unable to read. God, we pray that you would raise up godly men and women 
in Niger for your name, for your renown, for your fame, and for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, including uh, the countries that we're praying for. And so we pray that there will come a day, and we know that it's coming, um, where every knee will bow and every tongue would confess. And so we pray uh, for them today. We pray that um, Christians around the world would mobilize um, for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. So we love you. We pray now uh, for a tremendous amount of courage as we tackle a difficult text. Uh, Pray for clarity. God, I pray that you would uh, use my words uh, for your glory. Help me just to uh, get out of the way. So we love you, we trust you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been around here, we, we typically preach verse by verse. We're going to do that again today. Nothing is changing, but we've been walking uh, pretty slowly through the letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He's writing from prison, uh, which is important to just kind of keep everything in context. It's part of a, a greater kind of sermon series, if you will, on Paul's prison epistles and the letters that he wrote from a prison in Rome. Um, but... I don't, I don't know what you think of like of my job like, or a pastor's job. I don't want to make this seem a lot about me, but it can seem, and, and again, I don't know your perspective, but like it can be pretty complex at times. It can be really challenging at times. It can be really difficult. And I say all of that to say this. In the grand scheme of things, it's actually quite simple. Uh, my job is to preach Christ every single time I have an opportunity. And what's funny about my job is it's also your job. Okay, see what I did there? So anybody want to trade spots? Uh, this, is a, this is a hard text today, but it, ultimately what it does is it summarizes what a Christian's view of Jesus should be. And so we are doing, if you're new to the church, we're doing what we like to call Christology today in, in its most robust form. Okay, Christology meaning what we think about when we think about who Jesus is, how he's been revealed to us through the word of God, through his person, work, and his nature. My prayer, every time I stand up here, it never changes, is Christ be magnified. It's the last thing I pray as I send my kids off the stage is, Lord, this is all about you. And so I want you to know that this week, this has been a very difficult sermon to organize. I have taken blocks of content and I've moved it up. I've taken other blocks of content and I moved it down. I've then taken that block and moved it back up and then I deleted the whole thing and started over. Okay? Because the reality is the beauty of this text is the most important thing that we can ever talk about. Now, I know that I'm guilty of saying that, uh, all, you know, week after week that this is the mountaintop of God's work. Okay? And this is it again. Okay? So don't let that become, don't come numb, become numb to it. But this is the pinnacle of theological truth. This is it. What we believe about who Jesus is, C.S. Lewis says you have to do something with Jesus every time you come to him. Either He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And today, what I hope to do is to clearly cast a vision of Jesus as Lord. I think that's why we are here. That's why I am here. I think that's why we're here week after week. That's why we sing songs like the songs that we just sang, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, while we can and we should come to this passage often, which we do, if you've been around the branch, we come to Philippians chapter 2 regularly. We should always come to it for theological reflection, but our primary task isn't theology. It is worship. And so my prayer is that today, as we delve the depths of Christology, that our hearts would change, that we would see Christ through a beautiful lens. And let's keep it in context that Paul is writing a letter of encouragement 
If you've been around, you know how much love and care he's been writing to the church in Philippi for unity, for joy, for steadfastness, to warn them against priorities and preferences that have started to sneak the way into the walls of the church, disrupting their life with Christ. He's writing to bring unity to this body. And so that is our prayer today. It's been said that this text is known as the hymn of Christ. And so while I'm not going to sing, you're welcome. Uh, I do want us to read with a rhythm. And so let's go now to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. We'll go down through verse 11, really piggybacking off where Jared was last week in verses 1 through 4. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, when we talk about unity within the church, it's really easy in the Christian West to let our preferences on worship or wallpaper color or tarp color. I don't know if we really had much debate around it, but we let simple things erode the beauty of the unity of the body of Christ. You've probably heard churches who split because of silly things. The coffee was too hot or the coffee was too cold or the coffee was whatever, right? It's always the coffee's fault or it's the paint color's fault. And the reality is that's what's happening in Philippi. There is some sort of fracture, there's some sort of disunity, and Paul begins to press in. And really when he begins to climax this message of unity, where does he turn? He turns to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. And so as we look at verse 5, this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, what does that even mean? If you were in family group this week, my family group did a lot of this. Looked at Andrew, looked at me, I looked down, right? Have this mind among yourself. We are unified through adoring Christ. That's what brings us together, through emulating him, which is living a life that looks like Jesus. And so how do we learn what that looks like? But the more that we behold his glory and imitate his character, the more unified we become. If we look like Jesus, the body becomes unified. We are united with Christ, and now we must walk after him. To have the mind of Christ requires to know what the mind of Christ is. And we do that by coming to the word of God. This, these acts of uh, the hymn of Christ, the, the height from which Jesus stooped, I want us to see these things, the depths to which he stooped, and then the highest heights to which he soared, begins here with the unity that we have 
in the mind of Christ. Christ the King stooped to share his mind of humility with us. Now, what you have to be very careful of is where humility is, humiliation follows. Okay? One of the things that we brought up in our family group is the humiliation of Christ is where he received his exaltation. Caesar was never humiliated. His job, he's the king, he's the emperor, his job was to humiliate others for his exaltation. That's not the way Jesus rules. Jesus is exalted through humiliation, which is taking the world's paradigm of power and prestige and flipping it upside down. And he has come to serve. Well, I hope we will see this clearly. But the question we have to ask ourselves, if you have one of these, it's time to use it. The question we have to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? There's Tozer who said the most important thing that you could ever think about is what you think about when you think about God. Okay? I have another Tozer quote in here. You're welcome. It's coming later. Okay? But the question we have to ask is, who is Jesus? Now, it's, if any of you were at the Branch School of Theology a few weeks ago when we talked through how to read the Bible, what we, one of the points that was made was that all, of heres, all heresy throughout Christendom stems from the Bible. Okay? Someone takes the Word of God, manipulates it, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. Most of the time it's intentional because if I can make God say what I want God to say, then I can make people follow me. And if I can get people to follow me, do you see how that goes? This is why we come to the Word of God week after week after week. And we said, not my words, but yours. Okay? So the question is, who is Jesus? But all of the early church heresies, and I'm going to walk through some of them. So for those of you who are excited about heresy, get ready. It's coming. But all of them stem from a misunderstanding of this question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Arius, is one of the early church heretics, said that Jesus wasn't fully God. It's a problem. Apollinaris said Jesus didn't have a human mind. Nestorius, Jesus was two persons united by a common will. In Eutyches, Jesus only had one nature after the incarnation. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. The first line, Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God. Jesus is creator. He was not created. On the back of your sheet is the Nicene Creed. Before I read from it, I want us to read from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Some of you know this, probably know it by heart. In the beginning was the capital W. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And all God's people said, amen. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus isn't the first created being. He wasn't the first among created order. Jesus has, as my kids would say from our discipleship guide, has always been existing. We're working on grammar too, okay? They, they go to a city school, all right? Give them a break, all right? 
But the Nicene Creed stems from, as most creeds and councils in the early church did, from, hey, there's this, they're taking Christ and they're making him something that he is not. We need to guard against the integrity of the church, the body of the Christ. And so all the pastors would get together and they say, we got to fight for Christology. We got to fight for what we believe about Jesus. We got to fight that for who he was, for what he's done and what he has promised to do because he's not finished yet. And so they would get together and they would come up with these statements. Let's look at the Nicene Creed on the back of your sheet. It says, we believe in how many gods? How many? One God. That's a good start. The Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Verse 2. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. What does it say next? Eternally begotten of the Father. Now listen to the rhythm of these next few words. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Jesus wasn't created in a manger. He has been in existence in holy communion with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. There has never been a single moment in all of history where Jesus has not ruled and reigned. Not a single moment. So for us to say that Jesus is created is to say that Jesus is not God. And if he is not God, then we are still awaiting a Savior to come. Do you see how scary this can be? Now listen, I understand that not all of us are coming in here on the same page. Some of us are new to church. Some of us just walked in maybe for the very first time. That's why you have a sheet today, okay? Because we're talking about things of great depth. And so I wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, not made. He was begotten. I had a seminary professor. I'll do this real fast because I don't have time. Megan's not here today, by the way, so I don't have anybody to do this. So uh, pray for us, okay? Um, but I had a seminary professor who would, he would, uh, it was in a historical theology class and he would, he would start teaching on all these heresies from the early church. And he would talk about how important this word begotten is. And he would go on this little tirade of like, he would say, spiders beget spiders. Zebras beget zebras. Elephants beget elephants. And he was massive. And God begets God. And the point is, Elephants don't come from lizards. They come from elephants. If Jesus is the Son of God, he cannot be created because God the Father is not created. He has always existed. For him to be the eternally begotten Son of God, he cannot have been a created one. Okay? Everybody good? All right. Let's look at verse 6. That was the first verse, by the way. Okay? All right. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 6, this word to be grasped, one of the things that came up in our group this week, and I loved it and went and looked at the Greek text, is grasped means to be exploited or to be used for his own gain. 
Jesus didn't come on a throne. He came in a barn. He didn't come with a golden spoon in his mouth. He came like one of us. Isaiah says he came meek and mild, someone not to be admired. He looked like us. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He probably had acne at one point. Right? He was one of us. God, though, is a giver and not a grasper. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You, the generosity liturgy we, we read week after week after week. What does it say right there at the end? It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits to show the world what you are like. That is what Jesus has done in the incarnation. We're celebrating Christmas today, by the way, if you didn't know yet. Okay? He didn't try to exploit being the son of God for his own gain. Even though in the desert, in the wilderness, he's tempted by Satan to take control, to take power, to exploit his being the son of God for his own fame. And he doesn't do that. Generosity is a defining aspect of the character of God. Look at verse 7. Jesus is God in human flesh. That's your third one. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is God in human flesh. Look at, go back and look at John, the Gospel of John, verses, uh, John 1, verse 14 and 16. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth from his fullness. We have all received, what does it say? Grace upon grace. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Eugene Peterson, who's a guy that I admire, he died a few years ago. Uh, He's the guy who wrote the message, okay? He wrote other books too. I don't care what you think about the message, but he, the way he translated this passage in his paraphrase of the Bible is that Jesus moved into the neighborhood. And while I love that, and it gives some beauty to it, the, he didn't just move into the neighborhood. He came in and he pivoted all, all of human history on the hinge of his incarnation. Like we have to do something with who Jesus is. Jesus is God in human flesh. This word that we see of form is the Greek word morphe. And what I want us to be really clear is that Jesus didn't just appear to be man. Like he wasn't some sort of human hologram. He was actually man. And at never at any point in his life did he fail to be God. Okay, so when we say that he emptied himself, Tozer says he veiled his deity, but he did not void it. Okay? So he set aside some of his rights and privileges, but never any of his attributes or authority. Because if he were ever to do that, then he fails to be God. He can't at any point lose his godness. Otherwise, he isn't God. Augustine wrote that Christ emptied himself not by losing who he was, but by taking to him what he was not, which is human flesh. Okay? He became like us. He doesn't void him of his godness, but he, is, he willingly, this is the humiliation of Christ, this is part of it, is he, takes, he lays down his rights and privileges so that he can understand who we are and what we are about, and ultimately so that he could die, a real death. Because if he was just appeared to be man, and wasn't an actual man, then his death wasn't a real death. 
when the Christian gospel centers on a God who didn't stay dead. I don't care what Frederick Nietzsche has to say. God is not dead. Jesus, here's your next one. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This is one of the beautiful complexes of Christianity. Okay, I don't know how many math majors we have. I wasn't a math major. Uh, You're welcome. But he's 100% God and 100% man 100% of the time. So I don't really know how the equation, what that looks like, but theologically it adds right up. He is fully God and fully man. He humbled himself voluntarily according to the will of the Father. Go read the red letters of your Bible. He's constantly seeking the will of the Father. Now what I want, I want you to write on your sheet, Isaiah 53. I don't have time to read it all today. I also want you to write John chapter 1. And the homework, okay, is to go read those two chapters today and then reread this passage, okay? But I'm going to take Isaiah 53 just real briefly and look at it in like little snapshots. Just be mindful that the book of Isaiah is in the Old Testament, okay? So this was written before Jesus was born, some 700 years before Jesus was born. Listen to Isaiah 53, chapter, uh, chapter 53, verse 2. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. You've seen the artwork of Jesus in a manger with the halo on his head? It's not how he was born. Just keep it in the context. He was born in a manger because no one made room for him. And the, the, the devastating reality is we still like to put him in a manger. We don't have room for him in our lives. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In verse 6 it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later it says he poured out his soul to death. And Paul, leaning on this hymn that the church would have known and recited for since Christ's resurrection, he poured his soul out to death even death on a cross. Now we all know the cross, right? We've seen it. Some of us may have a necklace or we got it on our desk or on a wall in our office or in our bedroom or dorm room or wherever you can get the sticky tape to stick something on, right? And we've become numb to the reality that the crucifix was the harshest form of punishment known to man. It was meant to hurt you, not to kill you. Although in its pain, it led to death, always, 100% of the time. No one ever survived the cross. It was meant to shame you. It was meant to humiliate you. It was meant to crush your spirit long before it ever crushed your lungs. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus is stripped of his clothes, nailed to the cross, completely naked, and they come and they put a crown of thorns on his head. Oh, surely, (laughs) God is going to die. Ultimately, that is what they are saying by putting the crown of thorns on his head. Jesus, who willingly laid down his rights as king of kings and lord of lords, gets a crown of thorns so that you and I could share in his heavenly crown, that we could be brought back in as brothers and sisters. First Peter 
says this in chapter two, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, for the gospel to be real, for it to be true, Jesus had to die an actual death, which meant that he had to be fully man. Now, for him to die without sin, he had to be fully God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. The next thing we see is this exaltation of Christ. Let's look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the climax of human history, all of redemptive history. From the beginning, in the garden, this is what the world was meant to be. That every tongue confess and every knee would bow to the name of Jesus, as far better than any other name, by the way, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the King of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. And if he is King of kings and he is Lord of lords and he is worthy of our worship, he is worthy of our being uncomfortable for his glory. He's worthy of laboring over a sermon so that you can get it just right. So that you could get in your car and go home and not wish for a redo. You're, I see a lot of you smiling. This is, this is the reality. And it is funny. The, the, the amount of times I get into my car and I drive home and I'm just like, man, I wish I could have done that over. It's not about me. My job is this, that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I preach so that I would believe Okay, so we have to look then at this next reality. The last thing that's on your sheet, we're going to come to the last Jesus' statement in just a second. But what did Jesus empty himself of at the incarnation? What did he set aside? And the two words that I put on here, okay, these are fancy words. The reason I printed it for you so that we could get on the same page here, okay? Kenosis versus kenoticism, Okay. Kenosis basically means that Jesus laid down only his rights and privileges. What Tozer said, he veiled himself. Kenoticism means that he laid down some godness. That is heresy. That will corrupt a church faster than anything else except for the music selection. Jesus laid down his rights and his privileges not his attributes or authority. So when, he said, when it says he emptied himself, he emptied himself of the thing that all of us crave the most, his rights and his privileges. And ultimately, we are inheritors of his rights and his privileges. We receive a seat at his table 
We receive a crown that was meant for him. We receive the throne. We receive presence of God himself. Not presence with an E-N-C-E. Can I just keep it clear? I know we said Christmas. But if Jesus ever ceases to be God, then he can't be the Messiah. He can't. And then we're still waiting for another. So Jesus lays down his rights and his privileges, which is a form of humility. And so for us, we have to beg, it begs the question of, what is the thing in my life that I hold such high esteem that I'm not willing to lay it down? Because for Jesus, he had never known anything other than perfect harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. Jesus being the eternally begotten Son of God. And he comes in the form of a man, in the form of a slave, by the way, is really what it says. The text, when it says form of a servant, that word servant is where we get the word slave. As we look at the biblical text, from the very beginning until the very end, we read from Revelation this morning. This is the story of how God chooses to work in the world to reveal Christ so that we could be imitators of him. So my job ultimately is to try to live this out in a way that others might see that Christ is better than anything else that the world has to offer. God is not dead. He is alive and he is working in your life. I'm going to close this this morning by looking at Matthew chapter 5. So I'm going to give you a second to go flip over there. This is the Beatitudes. And I'm going to read them, and then I'm going to reread them. Because I think a lot of times we come to texts like this, and we say, you know what? Jesus is our example. And he is. It actually says that. In Philippians, Christ's example of humility. And while he is an example, he's also the supreme authority. He's not just one to look at, to model. He's one to look at for salvation. If you want to model him, he must provide a way for you to model him. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 2. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think a lot of times we look at the Beatitudes and we place ourselves in the middle of them. Gosh, I'm poor in spirit. Or I'm hungry. Or I'm thirsty. And I think if Jesus is who he says he is, then this is how it reads. He is the perfect fulfillment 
of each of these devastating realities. Jesus becomes poor in spirit so that we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus mourns so that we can be comforted. He makes himself meek so that we can inherit the earth. He becomes hungry and thirsty. Lord, when have we ever seen you hungry or thirsty? What does he say? Wherever you've seen the least of these, you've seen me. He becomes hungry and thirsty so that we can be satisfied. He is pure in heart so we can see God. He is the ultimate peacemaker so we can become sons and daughters of God. He is persecuted for our inheritance. Jesus is reviled. Jesus is persecuted. Jesus is accused falsely so that we can receive the reward of salvation. That's how you read the Beatitudes. So for those of you who come limping in week after week, Jesus limped in with you. And he limped before you. And he provided a way to cure you. Only through him and him alone. And any time we try to take any sort of worldly work and tack it on, slap him in the face. Jesus alone paves the way. Jesus alone is the perfect fulfillment of all of the Beatitudes. He is our example, and yet he is so much more than that. He has ransomed a people for himself from every tribe, from every nation, and from every tongue. And as Isaiah wrote, upon him was the chastisement that brought us Peace. Peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited snake crusher, soul healer, defeater of sin, death, and Satan. Today, that is still true because he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he willingly laid down his rights and privileges so that you could be called a son or a daughter of God the Most High. As we respond this morning, some of you in the room, I know, are new in your journey with Christ and sometimes what we need to do is we need to gather together just to declare the, the simple truth that Jesus is Lord. We do that in family groups. We do that here. We do that at Easter. We do it on Good Friday. All those things are coming up. But we do that most beautifully through baptism. So maybe you've been following Jesus for a while. Or maybe you just are like, I'm, I'm following Jesus now. And you've never been baptized Come talk to me or one of our other elders or one of our staff people because there is no more beautiful expression of the humili humiliation and exaltation of Jesus than when we together as brothers and sisters say, I was buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. So would you respond in obedience that way? We don't give that call often, okay? But we need to make that call because if not, you would, you would never do it, all right? And then as we go to communion, our tables are on either side. I want you to do this today, just like stay in your seats longer than you normally do, okay? And then come and respond, because Jesus is the Christ. 
He is the Son of the living God. And you can, as you see the, the text from the Gospel of Luke, read it today as you respond in the beauty and the magnitude of who he is, that he, he was humiliated and ultimately that he is exalted. And let that be your prayer. So maybe you have unconfessed sin in your life. You could do that this morning before you go to the table. And let Christ be exalted, the giver of the ultimate meal, the satisfier of our souls. One Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, one in being with the Father for us and for our salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, this morning to be together, to worship as a body, to press into these, the depths of the truth of who Jesus is. I pray that your spirit would work in our lives today as maybe some of these areas we like to set aside. We don't want him to be king of our lives or Lord of our lives. Would you free us from that? Would you give us space and time, even as we respond this morning, to rest in the, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah? So we thank you that you're not dead, that you are alive, that you are working. And so I pray for uh, these brothers and sisters now that our worship would make much of Jesus today. So Lord, we love you and we trust you. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be called children of God. So we pray these things in the beautiful, powerful, resurrected name of the eternally begotten Son of God, Jesus. All God's people said, amen.